questions are there. Well, we're going to dig into the, today's message. Um, I want to mention where we were last week before we launch in today. Last week, you'll remember, as we gathered together, we began speaking about divine community. We talked about what the church is, what the church is meant to be. And we said, first of all, what the church is not. So we discussed those issues. The church is not a physical location, not not merely a building. The church is not a social club. The, The church is not a spectator sport. We talked about what the church is then, and we spoke about how the church is, in very real sense, a spiritual building. We are part of the structure that is being built. The church is God's spiritual body. It is Christ living through and among us today, and the church is also the bride of Christ. We mentioned that the church is the most important institution on planet Earth, and probably the most important institution in all of human history. It is the gathering of the called out ones. That's who we are as the church. Today we're going to be speaking again about divine community, about the church, but we're going to be discussing authority structures in the church. If you were raised in the 80s, if uh, you grew up during the late 70s, early 80s, maybe even into the early 90s, you remember an institution known as an arcade. Now, this was back before video games were in everyone's pockets or easily available in mass at home in front of your own television. Video games were something that you went out to do. And so you would go to a mall or you would go to a putt-putt course or something of the like, and you would walk into this room. And for a child, for a young teen, experiencing this was amazing. You'd walk into this room that was full of all these glowing uh, modules that had various video games on them. And so you would take your money and you would pour coins into the one machine after the next, playing video game after video game until you were done or out of money. And then you would have to sit and watch other people play video games for a little while till you were picked up. The arcade was a blessed thing, but there was something that happened in the arcade that would, could ruin your day. If you went to the arcade to play a particular game and you stepped up in front of the machine, occasionally you would see this sign on the machine that said, out of order. And out of order let you know this was not going to work. The game is either not functioning correctly or it's not functioning at all, but you will not be playing this game. Wouldn't it be great if all of life came with out of order signs? So you could walk into a restaurant and immediately you saw a sign hanging around the waitress's neck and you went, this is going to be a bad experience. I'm not pouring my money into this. Or maybe you met another person and as you begin engaging with that person, you know, you saw an out of order sign hanging around them. You went, this is horribly broken. This little connection here is not going to work. And it would defend you against making bad decisions. Imagine if the world came with out of order signs. Some of those out of order signs would be on the church. And they would give you warning against a particular congregation or a particular teacher or a particular preacher. The way things were working were not working. Wouldn't it be great? Well, the church often should have an out-of-order sign on it because it is doing the wrong things or functioning in the wrong way. And I want to discuss what those ways are. We're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time today talking about what is wrong in the church, what goes wrong in the church, and what needs addressed when it comes to authority structures in the church. If you would open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be spending the bulk of our time today. Before we launch into that, though, I want to address historically two ways in which the church has failed. Two major ways in which the church has failed when it comes to leadership. The first way 
is in regards to hierarchies and domineering leadership, a failure to lead correctly. Some sectors of the church have created artificial authority structures. And so they'll have these massive paradigms where this person is subservient to this person, is subservient to this person, and you have these huge hierarchies of leadership. You look at that and you might think, well, that makes sense. I mean, doesn't the world operate that way? But then you step back away and you begin looking at the first century church and you think, the church was not meant to function like this. This is not what I see in the New Testament church. There is not stack upon stack upon stack of leadership. There's also a problem with uh, another kind of warning sign, another out of order sign here, when the church acquires wealth that does not make sense. Like the world's businesses, it just pours wealth into itself. It gains more and more and more, and you see affluence, and you see money spent in such a way that you look at the New Testament, you think, I just, I can't see Jesus doing that. I can't, I can't see the early church functioning that way. There's a story about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, a brilliant philosopher and theologian, he wrote uh, the book Summa Theologica. It's one of the major influences in world history concerning the church. Thomas Aquinas once visited Pope Innocent II. He went to the Vatican. And the story goes that Pope Innocent II made a lavish display of the Vatican's wealth. He showed them all the pomp and all the power that the Vatican had acquired. The Pope then remarked to Thomas Aquinas. He said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas replied, true, but neither can she say, Rise and walk. The power of the church is diminished when it does the wrong thing when it comes to wealth and power acquisition. Some sectors of the church had made biblical leadership roles mimic those of domineering and power-wielding roles that we see in the world. Jesus specifically chastises these very sentiments in the church when he sees them arise among his disciples. This is the way the world works, but this is not how you are to function, leaders in the church. That would be one set of out-of-order signs, the wrong kind of leadership. But the second kind of out-of-order sign that we could see on the church is when the church rejects legitimate authority. You see, God did put actual authority structures into play in the church and there is a problem, particularly in the Western churches, in the Protestant churches, where everyone in the church assumes that he or she is an equal authority. Or maintaining that sentiment maybe that I am as much an authority as anybody else. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Have you heard the term submission? Submission is almost a dirty word in our culture. People don't like that word because for many, it has the, the feel of weakness or of, of being overpowered by someone or being dominated by someone. Many in our culture balk at that word, but if you set the baggage aside that has come to be attached with that word in our culture, if you think about that word in its original context, here's what you realize. The term submission means just to place one another, oneself under the authority of another, to place oneself under the authority of another. Now, Peter wrote to the church, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this to the church. He says, you are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a nation holy to God. You are a priesthood. So there's this sense in which, terrifyingly, we, every believer who is in the church, is a priest in God's paradigm. 
It's a profound and terrifying truth. Each of us has been endowed with spiritual authority. We are, as Peter describes, a kingdom of priests. So then, here's the problem. Many people hear that and they understand that and they say, look, I am as important to God as any other human being that is here. God loves me as much as everyone else. And so then they begin to look at one another and they church and they think, you don't tell me what to do. You don't influence me. It's, it's God and Jesus and then it's me. I am the one who relates to Jesus in that fashion. And some of our worship songs even reflect that. For years, particularly in the early 90s, a lot of worship music came out, and it was just discussing this relationship with Jesus and me, and it's, I'm worshiping you, and you and me, and you and me, and there was no sense of community in a lot of those songs. I think most of those songs are getting better. Some of that's improving. And it's not that that's not a spiritual truth, but we've got to be careful here. The church is meant to have submission as a regular part of the interaction in and amongst the church. Should it be the case that we cross our arms and look at each other and like a bunch of four-year-olds say, you're not the boss of me? The answer to that is no. As As Paul would have said it, may it never be. That is not the way we engage with one another. There are legitimate authority structures in the church, and we are to submit to them and to one another. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to who? One another. Everyone in the church should be going, How can I elevate your needs above my needs? How can I serve you? And if the whole church functions that way, what a beautiful community that is. But authority in the church is not like authority in the world. Jesus' disciples at one stage in in Jesus' ministry, they're all walking along together, and his disciples have one of the most childish, ridiculous arguments you can imagine. They begin to argue about who is the greatest among them. Which one of us is the best? Now, that would be an argument most of us would be ashamed to have, but in that culture, in that day and age, this would be a more normative discussion. Jesus changed the way we think about humility and submission. But in that day and age, it was normal for people to elevate themselves. I am greater than you for these reasons. Luke 22, verse 24 through 27, we read about this. Now, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles have absolute power and they lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not to be this way with you. On the contrary, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and least privileged, and the one who is the leader, like the servant. And then he asks them this question. He says, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, the person who's laying down being served, or the one who serves? And then he says, is it not the one who reclines at the table? I mean, isn't it common knowledge? Doesn't everybody know that the person being served is the greater? But then Jesus reverses the whole idea of what leadership looks like by pointing back to himself. And he says, but I, God incarnate, I am among you as one who serves. Do you want to see what leadership looks like in the church? It is not domineering. It is not a power that exerts its power on others. It is servant leadership. That's what it looks like in the church. Jesus gives us the perfect illustration of what this looks like. Jesus shows us what leadership ought to be in the church. Just very briefly, Jesus is a legitimate authority. Here's what I mean by that. 
Jesus knows everything there is to know about God. He is the consummate master at understanding God. That makes someone a legitimate authority in the church. The more we know about God, the more elevated we are as an authority in the church. Secondarily, Jesus is the perfect example. He is the very image of God, completely holy in his practice and his presence. Do you want to see what a leader looks like in the church? It's someone who is the perfect example. They show us who God is and what God is like through the way they live. So it's knowledge of God, and it's demonstrating who God is through the way you live. Thirdly, Jesus is the consummate servant. He is God in the flesh, and yet he's humble and hardworking and self-sacrificing, even to the point of sacrificing himself on our behalf. That's what leadership needs to look like in the church, and that's exactly the way the leadership of elders in the church is described. Let's talk about how the church is to be ordered. I'm just now getting to point one. This does not bode well. Point one, how is the church to be ordered? I want to talk about how the church should not be ordered before we talk about how the church is ordered. Mistakes that people typically make when they're trying to exert the authority of the church. Here's number one, a way that we really mess up the church. First of all, the church is not a democracy. I will say that again. The church is not a democracy. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but we had an election this past week. We are kind of still having an election right now. I think it's might, maybe it'll end this month, maybe not. We'll see. Um, but in America, many of us think voting is a sacred right. It's something God gave us. It's sort of in our DNA to think that my voice must be heard, my opinion must be expressed, and, and my values have to count. And that makes sense if you're from an American culture. However, voting does not take place in the New Testament church. Voting does not take place in the New Testament church. Look at the New Testament model. We see no voting, no instance of voting as a church practice in the New Testament. We were at an elders meeting some months ago, and we were actually talking about the issue of voting. And uh, Mike Engel pointed out this truth, and it's a profound truth. You want to see voting in the New Testament, there's one instance of it. In the New Testament, there is one vote taken, and in that vote, uh, we, that vote uh, was, was given by Paul. He was a participant in that voting, and it resulted in the murder of one of the greatest Christians of all time. That was the vote to condemn Stephen to death. So if you want a good example of voting in the New Testament, there it is for you. There's democracy in the New Testament, Paul voting to have Stephen put to death. Well, you might be thinking, but voting's great. If God had known how great voting was, surely he would have instituted it as part of the church. Think about how ridiculous that statement is for just a moment. If God had just known how great voting was, of course God knows how great voting is. God knows everything there is to know about democracy, and God chose not to make democracy a part of how the church functioned. Not only did God know about democracy, but probably everyone in the New Testament church also knew about democracy. Do you remember what language they were speaking in the first century? Do you remember what language the scriptures were written in? It's Koine Greek. Greek, The Greeks were who gave us democracy as an institution. And remember, the Romans ruled over the region that the church was birthed in, and the Romans also had democracy as part of their republic. Not only does God know what democracy is, but the church and every first century Christian probably knew a great deal about democracy as well. And yet, it's not part of the New Testament church. 
Now, if you're thinking, yes, but it really should have been, can I recommend to you strongly against improving on God's design? When God has spoken, I, I must assume that God makes no mistakes, that God does not commit errors, and if democracy was not a part of the first century church, then it should not be part of our church either. So why didn't God allow democracy in the church? Why didn't he create it as part of what the church does? I'm going to assume that God knows. God understands it even if we don't, but I think it doesn't take much thought to understand why democracy is a bad idea for the church. A democratic process tends just to reflect the minds of the people. So oftentimes democracy results in very bad decisions because the bulk of the people if they were given their opinion, would just make bad decisions. Now, I want you to think about what the church is. The church is a community of believers committed to bringing in people from the outside, untrained people, people who don't know and don't have discernment, and, and many people who have very messy lives that they're trying to fix. And, and that's true for all believers, believers, but certainly of those who are coming in. With that being the case, can you see how it might be a bad idea to just go, let's all together just decide what is spiritually true? Let's all together just decide the direction of Christ's church. In practice, voting results in a lot of things that we can observe really destroying the church. Often votes disregard parts of the Bible they don't like. When you see churches that begin voting and deciding what the Bible should and shouldn't say, people treat it like they do old country buffet. I'm not taking the vegetables. All I want is the best things, the things that I like the most. I'm not eating what mom wanted me to eat. I'm eating what I want to eat. So the bacon then goes into the chocolate fudge fountain, and that's what we digest, right? The scriptures do not indicate that we are to live that way or function that way. The scriptures are invaluable in communicating truth to us. It is the case that many churches that vote often vote to jettison central Christian doctrines, and often they vote to enshrine things that are not a part of Christ's church. So they value things that shouldn't be valued, and they diminish things that should never be diminished. Entire denominations split on the basis of votes, and individual churches split on the basis of votes. I think God knew what he was doing when he said the church is not a democracy, or not meant to be a democracy. Um, imagine it this way. Imagine you're on a ship, and there are 100 people on the ship, and everybody has their different role in the ship, but, but the captain of the ship goes, hey, you know what? I've got an idea. We've got to navigate these rocky shoals. It's a dangerous territory, but I want everybody to really give voice to what we're doing and where we're going. So everyone gets a rope, and they all tie it off to the ship's wheel, and then they all begin pulling in order to help the boat move where it's supposed to move through those rocky shoals. Now, most of us, if we were in that condition, would just be pulling as hard as we could just to exert our influence and fight that other guy on the other side who's trying to make it go that way. This is why the democratic process is not good in a church. Now, in case you were not aware of it, CFLM is presently operating outside of the biblical model for leading a church in this regard. <gasps> not intentionally. Um, as I understand it, CFLM borrowed its bylaws from another congregation, and that congregation had not done its theological homework. And when this church was initially structured, they just kind of grabbed something and went whole cloth with it without thinking through whether or not some of these things were meant to be part of the church. Now, technically, we're not 
operating outside of God's paradigm in this regard, and that you have not voted since you've been here probably, because generally the church never takes a vote on anything, but we have bylaws that state that the congregation votes on things. Now, our elders are working on fixing it. We have actually constructed new bylaws that accurately, accurately reflect the New Testament model. But unless we want to start from the ground up and re, reconstitute the entire church, here's something ridiculous we're going to have to do. We have to take a church vote in which we say, the church should not be voting according to the New Testament paradigm. So at some stage of the game, that vote is going to come before the congregation, and you're going to have to vote to say, this is not the way the New Testament operates. We're going in this direction instead. If that comes up, would you please do what the New Testament prescribes, not what America prescribes? And if you have challenges on those issues, I'd love to talk with you individually. Set up a time with me. If you want to talk about the church's ability to vote, I'd love to have that conversation with you. The church is not a democracy. Secondly, another problem that the church generally has is the church sometimes becomes a cult of personality surrounding one preacher or one teacher. The church is not to be a monarchy. It is not to be a cult of personality surrounding an individual. Very common for churches to find one charismatic person, and then everybody kind of makes it about that person. Francis Chan left his church, a very successful church where he was at because of this, because he found out that people were pulling into the parking lot and they were saying, is Francis preaching today? And if somebody said, no, he's not, then people would just turn around and leave. Francis Chan said, I'm not going to be a part of a church that treats me like that, that would elevate me at that level. That's not healthy. Paul had to deal with this as well. Uh, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, but one of the churches, the Corinthian church, or one of the problems the Corinthian church had was that they had contention over whether or not people followed Paul or this other charismatic leader named Apollos. And so Paul addresses the church this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 4-9, through 9, he says, For when one of you says, I'm a disciple of Paul, and another, I'm a disciple of Apollos, are you not proving yourselves unchanged, just ordinary people? What is Apollos and what is Paul? Just servants through whom you believed in Christ, even as the Lord appointed each to his task. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who causes the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one in importance and esteem, working toward the same purpose, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, his building, God's building. Paul's response was, you better not form up around a cult of personality surrounding me. And don't give Apollos that problem either. This is not the way the church is to operate. No one person should be the center of the church. Let me say this, and I will say this of me too. If, if this ever becomes the case with me, please shut me down. Any minister embracing or chasing the accolades and fandom of a congregation has serious issues with pride. God, if you haven't noticed, is not a fan of pride. The moral failure or death of a single person in some of these instances, some of these cult of personality instances, can cause the fall of an entire congregation. That's a tragedy. A congregation should not implode because a single individual disappears. That's not the way the church is meant to function. Alexander Strange, the author of Biblical Eldership, was speaking to an Asian American church community at Biola University. And he recounted uh, meeting with a minister 
And this minister had, he, he told him this following story. He said, um, I was uh, in a position where I was a minister, but I was out of work and I got contacted by a church. They said, look, our, our pastor has, has left. We need an interim pastor. Can you come preach for us? And this minister recounted, yes, I went to preach for this church. And after six months, they found the guy they were looking for and I moved on. And another church picked me up immediately. Hey, we lost our preacher. Can you come preach for us as an interim minister? And so he went to the next church. This man that recounts that for 11 years of ministry, he went from one church to the next, to the next, to the next as an interim preacher. And here's what he said. He said there wasn't one church that he had been to or seen that had developed and trained its leadership sufficiently that even one person in the congregation was able to step up and preach or teach. Not one person in the whole of the congregation could do the work of the preacher. He lamented that in these congregations, when the pastor leaves, nobody is able to step in. Imagine the in, in instability caused by such a church where all their hopes, all of their understanding, everything they do and think of is framed up and hung on one hired hand who is meant to do it all. That is not what the church is meant to be. The goal of the church is making disciples. Any good leader would of necessity be replicating himself in others and equipping them to minister. I'm pleased to say that this is a congregation that has a number of people capable of preaching, particularly among the elders, a number of elders capable of preaching. That is a good and godly thing. Again, I'm inclined to say that if God had wanted it to be a cult of personality, he would have made it such. As it is, I want you to think about Jesus. You think there's any better preacher? Any better leader? And what was Jesus doing? Was he going, everybody needs to just constantly keep focused on me? No, he was training 12 people to do what he did. They were becoming, they were his disciples. They were becoming what he was in order to go out. And even as he was ministering with them, even as he was preaching, he sent them out to go do the preaching on their own. He was training and replicating himself. That is what leadership looks like in the church. It's what it ought to look like. The church is not a democracy. The church is not a monarchy. It is not a cult of personality surrounding an individual. And the church is not a, or the leadership in the church is not a board of directors. It's not meant to be a board of directors. Now, many churches assign the term elder to someone who runs their own business or is financially savvy. So they just grab somebody and they go, that guy is kind of respectable. Everybody seems to like him. Um, he does well in his own business or his profession. That guy is eldership material. Have you read the New Testament? Churches appoint businessmen to direct the course of the church. Indeed, depending on your experiences in the church, maybe that's what you think an elder is. I assure you, that is not biblical eldership. That is not the prescription of the New Testament. Nowhere amongst the qualifications for eldership in the scriptures will you find anything indicating successful in a profession or moderately just respectable enough in the community and he gets the job done or he's financially savvy and can handle his own money. That's not what's being spoken about in the qualifications for eldership. Any church that functions with a board of directors that they call an eldership is outside of God's plan for his church. And they often cause great harm to the kingdom and to their congregation because they treat it like a company. Brothers and sisters, the church is not a corporation. And it's not meant to be run like one. 
So what should leadership in the church be? The church is to be governed by the servant leadership of elders and deacons. Read through the book of Acts and you will see the Bible portrays a very specific role for leadership with regard to these elders. The scriptures and the epistles give us indications of the roles of elders, exactly who they are to be, what they are to do, and even directives on disciplining elders in the event that they engage in a moral failure. Let's talk about these prescribed leadership roles in the church. What church leadership ought to look like. Eldership, overseers, or shepherds. The following terms are used interchangeably for the biblical role of elder. One is the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros means old man. Occasionally when I'm in a, a church, you'll, you'll run into somebody. It's usually um, somebody asking, like, well, why can't women be elders? Well, because women can't be old men. And that is the prescription of scriptures. These men are, are the, the leaders in this directive are old men. That's the only way they're described when they're described as presbyteros. This term is not unique to Christianity. It describes a seasoned leader, masculine in nature, who is mature, who is experienced, usually one who is honored. The Greeks and Jews both described leaders with this term, presbyteros. But in the church, it came to describe Christians, many Christians who are mature believers who presided over a single local congregation. A second term that is used is episkopos, which means overseer. It's a superintendent, a manager, a guardian. Now, this word only occurs five times in the whole New Testament. One time it is used to describe Jesus, and the other four times it is used to describe leaders in the church. An overseer, a manager, or a guardian. The third term that is used is poimen. Poimen means shepherd. Now, what's interesting is uh, while this term is used to describe elders, it's um, only used once to describe the role of elder, a shepherd. Three times it is used as a verb for talking about what the overseer, what the old men do. They are shepherding. In other words, there's an emphasis on tending the flock, on caring for the flock, on guiding, protecting the flock. That is what overseers, that is what old men do. They protect the flock. Eldership is God's plan for his church. It's very clear in the New Testament that elders are central in the work of the church. They have authority over the local congregation. When elders are spoken about in the New Testament, the term is almost always plural, elders. We're talking about multiple people. And the term that is used for the church they govern is singular. So several people who oversee a local congregation, not one person who oversees many congregations. That tells us a lot about how the church is to function. The church does tell us a lot about this role. Alexander Strauch says it this way. He says, in fact, the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than any other of the important church subjects, such as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Day or baptism or spiritual gifts. We know a lot about what eldership is meant to be. So let's discuss the role of elder in the church. Many of you are like, he told us to go to 1 Timothy 3. When are we going to get to 1 Timothy 3? Right now. Let's dig into 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at verse 1. Here's what an elder is. An elder is someone with a calling or conviction to oversee. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires, or as the Amplified says it, eagerly seeks to be an overseer, desires a noble task. In other words, there's something in a certain person that says, you've got to intervene here. 
Whether that's the Holy Spirit, whether it's the individual spirit of, of a man that says, I've, I've got to help out the church in this regard. Whether or not it is a request from the other elders that say, hey, we need you to come serve with us. Or whether or not uh, it is, it's the, the bulk of the church where individuals in the church are, are treating someone as though they are a leader and elder. There is a certain call that says, you are meant to be helping the church in this regard. But it's not simply a feeling that I should lead. I find that a lot of Christians have a feeling that they should be in leadership, but not every Christian should be in leadership. Let's look at the next qualification. It's someone leading by example. An elder is someone leading by example. Now, notice I use that in the past tense. Someone who is already leading by example. I say this because you do not become an elder in order to spiritually lead. You are spiritually leading present tense, which may qualify you to be an elder. There's a difference. Think of it like a hospital. Imagine a hospital just goes around and they find some guy in the hallway and they put a name tag on him that says he's a surgeon. And so they say to him, go and try really hard to perform surgery. You're a surgeon now. We made you one. Do you want to get surgery from such an individual? Would you like to lay on that operating table? When somebody leans over and he goes, I have no idea what I'm doing, but they gave me a tag. This is not the way eldership should function either. A hospital hires someone experienced and qualified in the performing of surgery in order to fulfill that role. In the same way, an elder must be someone who is spiritually leading before they qualify to become an elder. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 through 7. Now the overseer is to be above reproach Faithful to his wife, right? He's got to be faithful in his own household. Temperate and self-controlled. This is somebody who has to be able to control himself, not somebody who blows up. Respectable, able to be respected. Hospitable, that means receptive, cordial, treating others with warmth. That's the kind of person who's ready to lead in the church. This next one's very important. Able to teach able to teach. A leader in the church has to be able to teach. Now by this, we're not saying that this person has to be super charismatic, that this person has to be an interesting teacher even. But here's what you need to know. Every elder must be prepared to defend good doctrine and to call out bad doctrine. They need to know what the scriptures say. An elder should be someone who I, I could call on or any leader in the church could call on and go, hey, we need you to teach on the book of Acts 1 through 5 in the next three months and should be a person who can go, yeah, I can do that. Some elders need to be in a position where they can step up and preach in front of a church. That's important. So an elder must be able to teach. Verse three, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now it amazes me how many times churches will throw somebody in a position of power who has issues with greed not a lover of money. Verse four, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. This is, by the way, historically where the church made a serious blunder. When Rome took over the church and uh, at that stage of the game, Christianity became legal and then it became the official religion of the state, Many people from pagan faiths begin to convert right into Christianity. And we know from the early church's experiences that many pagan priests 
stepped almost immediately into positions of power in the church, and it corrupted Christianity. Must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Question, does that mean these people are perfect, that your elders are perfect? No. (laughs) You know enough elders to know that that is not the case. While we were all made perfect through Christ, elders continue to be human beings, which means they're going to continue to grapple with their own personal failures and imperfections. But, and this is key, the elder must never stop grappling. The elder must never stop improving and trying to change more into the likeness of Christ. The elder must constantly be refining himself. The third thing that elders must do So they they must be someone with a calling or conviction to oversee. They must be someone already leading by example, teaching and training, capable of teaching and training. And thirdly, they must be someone who protects and defends the congregation. Now this is important. This protection is primarily theological in nature. I'm going to say that again. This protection is theological in nature, which means the elder is responsible for guarding your soul, for training your soul, for developing your spirit within you. Your elders are not advising you on mistakes in your stock portfolio. That's not their role. They're not charged with keeping you safe in traffic and making you a better driver. The elders are not charged with keeping you physically fit. Praise God. Rather, the protection of the elders is guarding and overseeing your soul. So every decision that the eldership makes is made with one directive in mind. How will I best disciple our congregation? And I can tell you, after nearly six months now of being a part of this congregation as the senior minister and much longer working with youth ministry, I can tell you the elders of these church, this church make decisions based on that framework. How are we best discipling our congregation? Titus chapter 1 is another passage that tells us a lot about the eldership. Flip your Bibles open to Titus chapter 1 if you have a moment. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He must, that is he, the elder, must firmly uh, hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. It's necessary that he encourage by sound doctrine. And listen to this, refute those who oppose it. In other words, if there are people in the church who are saying the wrong things, teaching the wrong things, thinking the wrong things, the elder must step in and intervene. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those among the circumcision group. That is a group that Paul had to contend with on a regular basis. They would come along and say, Paul told you part of the message, but here's what you need to know. You've got to be Jewish before you can be a Christian. And Paul had to constantly engage in refutation of those people. Verse 11 They must be silenced. People who are speaking the wrong things must be silenced because they are disrupting the whole whole households uh, by teaching what they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The elder is a theological watchman. They are put into place in the church to guard the doctrine and teaching of the church. In Paul's final words to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, He speaks about this defensive role of the elders. These are Paul's final words to a whole congregation. And he gives a prophecy in here about how the church will function for the whole rest of its history. Acts chapter 20, verse 25 through 31. 
Paul says this, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. I'm about to be killed. This is the last time you Ephesians are going to see me. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim um, to you the whole will of God. I have not held back on my theology because you might have been offended. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves. He's saying this to the elders. Keep watch over yourselves. One of the elders' first role is to guard himself against failure and, and falling apart. He's got to be on his own guard for his own soul. Keep watch over yourselves and of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that calling aspect. It is the Holy Spirit-driven thing. Be shepherds of the church of God. Shepherd them. Which he brought or bought with his own blood. Now I know after I leave, and here's your prophecy for the whole rest of the history of the church. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The elder must guard himself and his congregation that God has charged him with. In short, here is the role of elder. The elder is someone who is burdened by the need to shepherd and oversee the flock. The elder is integral in the discipleship process of the whole church and prioritizes it. The elder oversees a local congregation. He is to lead by service, by example, defending and communicating sound doctrine and guarding against anything contrary to the apostles' teachings. That is Scripture. I'm going to say something briefly about deacons if you want to flip back open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 15. Churches disagree on whether or not we should designate a category of person as deacon. The reason that's the case is because the word deacon literally just means servant. It is servant. Now, we have taken the term servant and we've kind of elevated it and tried to make it into like a special category of status, but it is merely a servant leader, at least as it appears in the scriptures. This term appears to be described or to describe both men and women. Uh, Phoebe is referenced as a deacon or deaconess in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. She appears to be. Phoebe was a uh, follower of of Christ who Paul actually gave the letter Romans to to carry back to Rome. So she actually brought the letter Romans to Rome. Um, There are other qualifications that make it look like women can be deacons as well. Uh, Let's look at one of them here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 15. And I should say this, churches disagree on whether or not women will be designated as, uh, as servant leaders. I think women serve as servant leaders one way or the other, so I have no problem saying that women qualify as deacons in this regard. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8-15. through 15. In the same way, and he's talking about like the elder, eldership role, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And the Greek there literally is this. It's let them deacon. Right? Let them serve. If they, if they qualify, let them serve. Notice they're very much like elders in their reputation and control of themselves and in their understanding of the things of God, but not in their qualification to teach. 
So in order to be a servant in the family of God, you don't have to be capable of teaching or guarding doctrine per se, but you must be capable of serving and be tr- being a, a good, reputable person. Uh, verse 11. This is why I think women qualify as well, because we're giving descriptions of deacons, and then here's what we read. In the same way, the women, or yours might be rendered wives. It's the same term in Greek, women or wives. The women who are, are, are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. In other words, a woman who fills this role, we're talking about deacons in front of it and behind it. A woman who fulfills this role must be like this, not malicious, temperate, trustworthy in everything. Then we go uh, to verse 12. A deacon, and this is a masculine, the the term deacon here is masculine, so we're talking about male deacons here. A deacon, a servant, must be faithful to his wife, must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served will gain excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 14, because this is instrumental to knowing why Paul wrote this whole thing. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. This is the way the church should run, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Let me close out by talking about a different kind of leadership. I just want to focus in on what leadership in the church looks like. It is not domineering. The church is to be led in a proximity learning role. A proximity learning role. Here's what that means. The church is meant to get together. It's described in our Hebrews passage for the month. The church is meant to gather. This is part of why our church continues to prioritize trying to get together even in the midst of a COVID response. The elders are thinking through this issue and going, the first century church is doing this. Christians around the world in difficult circumstances right now, their lives are being threatened. If they gather in some places in the, in the world right now, they can be imprisoned, they can be tortured to death, they can lose everything that they have financially, and they can be killed, and yet they still choose to meet. And this is why we make the decision to continue to try to meet to the best of our ability, even in the midst of Uh, a a pandemic. Proximity learning is is important. The gathering is important. Jesus chose 12 people to walk with him. Why? Because he wasn't just producing a set of ideas and handing them off to people. He knew that people needed to be in contact with him to learn and to understand and to become what he was. And the church is supposed to be the same entity right now. We gather so that we can learn from one another and experience the contact with one another that changes who we are forever. If I asked you to recall for me one thing you were taught in kindergarten, I bet you can't recall a single lesson. But I bet many of you can actually recall your kindergarten teacher. There's a difference between just hearing an idea and being with a person. There's a difference in the church gathering and the church just taking ideas. We are meant to gather. We are meant to be experienced in an eldership that leads. We are meant to experience deacons, servants who serve, and that is how the church is meant to function. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 illustrates Jesus' plan for such shepherding leadership in the church. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. To imitate somebody, you have to know them. You have to be around them. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you're reading that text, you might think, well, that's disjointed. Imitate your leaders in the faith. And then the next verse says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. What do those have to do with each other? Everything. Everything. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means the Jesus follower who is imitating Jesus is going to look like Jesus. And if you're around them, you can take on and imitate their faith and you will become more like Christ. The leader is to lead by proximity learning. The church is to gather for proximity learning. Godly service, humility, and submission is the only way the church is supposed to interact within the church. The church relates rightly to its elders uh, when they submit to their elders, when they put themselves under their authority of the elders. But people are not always like that, right? People complain. People complain a lot. One of my mentors in the faith used to say it this way. People are the worst kind. I love that phrase. (laughs) People are the worst kind. While the church is meant to distinguish itself from the rest of the world, sometimes she doesn't. Sometimes we revert to worldly thinking that proves a bit troublesome. Remember the Ephesians passage, submit to one another. I know that as you function in the world, as you think about the world, most of what you think of is I've got to assert my authority. Not so in this place. We outserve one another. That's the way it is meant to function within the church. Envision a Salvation Army guy. You know, you know the, the Salvation Army, when it's around Christmas time, they're out there and they're ringing the bell. Imagine walking up to that person and going, hey, that's not how you ring a bell. What are you doing? You should just leave. Or look at that person, why would you set up here? You should be set up over there. What's wrong with you? That person is a volunteer. That person is doing what they're doing out of the goodness of their heart. Can you imagine treating somebody like that? Uh, Like the way you would treat a manager in a restaurant. This is not what I ordered. You shouldn't treat a manager in a restaurant that way. Why would you treat the eldership in a church that way? How would you interact with the family of God that way and think that you're doing something right? Let me tell you something about the eldership of this church that I think is beautiful. You can come to them with questions and concerns anytime and they will address you lovingly and kindly. I want to encourage you to do that. If you have an issue with an eldership, not just in this church, in any church you're ever in, come and have a conversation instead of lashing out and treating people like you should, shouldn't even treat a manager in a restaurant where you got bad food. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Listen to this. This is a command of God. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. In the same way you wouldn't yell at the Salvation Army guy, would you consider that the elders are not getting paid for what they're doing? that they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, that they're meeting for three hours twice a month in order to refine theology and try to choose what is best for your church. Treat them as such. The church is to engage in humble leadership, and here we'll end. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter talks as an elder. You know, he was an elder. And he speaks to his fellow, fellow elders. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-6. through 6. Therefore I urge the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who has also been a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Do some shepherding. 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by providing or by proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is Christ, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Did you hear that? Clothe yourself with humility to one another. It's like, it's like putting on a garb. It's like going, if I'm going to talk to somebody, if I'm going to deal with somebody, before I come to them, it's not going to be in a spirit of pride or arrogance. I'm going to clothe myself with humility. I'm going to put myself in a condition like Christ did when he got down to wash the feet of his disciples. I'm going to put myself in a position that says, I'm serving you. I love you. That's how we should approach one another in the family of God. Clothe yourself with humility to one another because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. I want to close out with one last passage, and I know you're like, wow, that's a lot of Bible. I think that's a good thing. The passage is our memory verse for this month. Some of you are like, we didn't do the memory. Yeah, we're going to do it right now. I want to draw your attention to the teaching of this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Listen to the passage. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Let us consider, which means let us think about. Let us think about. Let us consider how to encourage one another. Let us consider how to encourage one another. Think about that. He's saying, when we're thinking about the church, here's what we need to be thinking about. How can I encourage other people? And not just how can I encourage other people, but how can I encourage other people in love and good deeds? I want them to love. I want them to feel loved. I want to express good deeds, and I want them to engage in good deeds. That's what we want to do. Next verse, or next part of the passage, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some. In other words, it is important for us to continually gather. But, again, he's going to repeat it encouraging one another we don't abandon each other we encourage one another and remember when you see repetition in the greek and hebrew context it is emphasis it is an exclamation point but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the author of hebrews said that nearly two thousand years ago the day is drawing more near we're much closer to the end so here's what we ought to do As we think about the church and what the church is, we need to think about servant leadership. We need to see it in our elders. We need to experience it in the servant leader deacons that are in the congregation that are already functioning there. And we need to engage with one another in a submission role. How can I build you up? How can I elevate you? How can I encourage you to love and good deeds? That is the way the church of Jesus Christ is meant to function. Let's go to our master in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your church. What an amazing idea you had. And Father, I thank you too that you established some order in the church, that it is not anarchy, but that you have set up a situation where you designated certain people are going to lead in a certain context. Father, I pray that as we deal with all of one another, that we submit to one another in as much as possible, that we put ourselves under the authority of one another, that this be a place where Christians gather to try to outserve and outlove and encourage. Let that be the case for Christ Fellowship at Little Miami. Let that be the case in my life. Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in your most precious name we pray. Amen.
Well, uh, I forgot to remind you at the front end of the service, but we're going to go to a time of communion right now. So if you want to scramble to get communion elements, that would be great. Um, Go ahead and grab um, juice and some form of bread. And let us, uh, even at this moment, take communion with one another. Go ahead and open up again and uh, grab your bread or your cracker, your whatever it is you're using at home. And let's consider our, this meal together. I want to pray, and then we're just going to take communion together. Lord our God, thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Thank you so much for the gift of your church, for this gathering where we can partake in communion with one another and communion with you. Lord, we praise you for your death, for your burial, and for your resurrection. And we join ourselves to that moment just now. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. In your most precious name we pray, amen. The Lord's body. And the Lord's blood poured out. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, that's it for this week. I hope to see as many of you as possible next week. Again, let us know what you need. We love you. Uh, Be safe, and we should see you next Sunday. God bless.